TED Audio Collective. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors? Stop them in their tracks. With Paycom, employees do their own payroll. They're able to identify errors and fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong. Not HR and payroll teams, not leaders, and definitely not employees. Shorted paychecks, timesheet corrections, unentered sick days, missing overtime hours, and expense mistakes are, well, unnecessary for everyone. Manage the process to make payday right with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com com slash soundrise. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from DesignObserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with graphic designer Steve Frickle about his career working in-house at Herman Miller. When he started at the company 41 years ago, Charles and Ray Eames were colleagues. You know, one of the things I learned from them was when you design something, you ask the question, what's next? And what's next? Here's Debbie Millman. Herman Miller is known for its classic modernist furniture the Eames lounge chair and the Noguchi table, to name just two of its storied products. For the past 40 years, Steve Frickholm, Herman Miller's creative director, has been responsible for creating the company's strikingly inventive image and graphic identity. His iconic posters have been acquired by the Museum of Modern Art and the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum. He is in New York to receive the AIGA Medal, the highest honor for graphic designers. Welcome to Design Matters, Steve. Hey, thanks, Debbie. Congratulations on receiving the medal. Oh, it was a great night last night. It was a great night. So the first thing I want to ask you about is your beard. How long have you had it, and how long do you let it grow before you trim it? Well, a lot of people ask me that. Do they? They really do. Oh, darn. uh, Yeah, but but (laughs) they're surprised with the answer, okay? Okay. The beard, let's see, I think it was when I was at Cranbrook, I had a little goatee. Okay. And then when I got the job at Herman Miller, I just decided to let it grow. So it has been now 41 years. 41 years. Nancy has never seen me clean shaven. Really? And it is actually about down to my mid-stomach because it's so curly. And the reason I've never shaved it, it is so thin, it would take me forever they grow it back to the position it is, the state it is now. <laughs> and, and so that's the story of the beard. And so you never do I anything to it. I don't trim it. I comb it. You comb it. And that sort of thins it out once in a while. Do and you ever use any gel to make it straight? No, no, no gel <laughs> Sorry. at all. I had to and, ask. and I've, I've got to tell you, I prefer it gray. When did it go gray? 
It's been several years. Several years. I've been working on it. Okay. Okay. So you started at Herman Miller after a stint in the Peace Corps, where you were teaching commercial art in Nigeria. And I understand that this is where your love of poster making began. And I was wondering if you can tell us how so. Sure. It was actually uh, my love of screen printing, which is a great media for doing posters. And I taught at the government trade school for girls in Aba, Nigeria. I was there for, I was going to extend for a third year because I was just really loving the experience. It was a wonderful experience. And the Biafra seceded from Nigeria. So we were in the middle of a civil war. And because it was a trade school, I was really trying to teach trade that once they got out of school, they could find, you know, some revenue and do something. And uh, so I had this screen printing shop working, and uh, it was very primitive. I mean, we used paper stencils. The runs were not very extensive. Our pigment, our screen inks were made from cassava starch and dried pigment. Now, is this all with these materials you created yourself because you knew how to make them? How did, uh, how did you go about getting these things? Well, I, ha- I had some, uh, some, I think I had a good book. It was very, God, it was a great book, but it's really like basic stuff. <laughs> so they basically say, hey, paper stencils work, diagrams, how to make frames, the squeegee. I probably went to the market to buy a few things. But the school had dried pigment. I said, cassava starch would be a good vehicle. Let's try it. And so we did. And, and a lot of times I had the girls illustrate some of their folk tales. And so they were really charming. I just wish that I had kept some of the prints because they were really just very primitive, really nice, naive. But when the Civil War started, it all came to an end. And, but my students did have the first T-shirt on the market. Really? So then I got the word, get your flea bag ready. We're out of here. And uh, so I had to leave with what I could take in my suitcase. So this was in 1967 when 1967. you first went into the Peace Corps. Well, I went in and in, uh, actually it was a new program where I was invited to train at the University of Berkeley between my junior and senior year in college. And that was the first time I'd been in California and San Francisco. And that was just fabulous. University of Berkeley in the mid-60s. You can oh just gosh. imagine, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. And so then, then uh, the idea was... If you were still in the program, because we did have a couple deselections during the summer, the intent was that you might do some more studies on Africa. I was going to West Africa. I knew I was going to be a teacher. And then as soon as I was uh, graduated, the second summer was at Morehouse Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia. What made you decide to go there? Uh, That was part of the training. Oh, okay. So it was from Berkeley to Atlanta Martin Luther King. I mean, it was just... Boy, oh boy, you hit we, all the right we, moments. And, and we, were, we were, you know, housed in the, in the Morehouse dormitories, living right in the center of the black community of Atlanta, assimilating us to what it might feel like when we got to Nigeria. So on May 26, 1967, the government of Nigeria's eastern region voted to secede and form the Republic of Biafra. Boy, you did your homework. <laughs> well, is, is this when you came back and worked at as a typesetter in New Jersey? No, actually, I applied to do some graduate work. If you remember, Vietnam was happening. And I knew I wouldn't necessarily get out of the draft, but it might delay it. So I applied for graduate work at the Arts Center, Boston University, Pratt Institute, and Cranbrook. 
and Cranbrook gave me a modest scholarship, so that was the decision. And so I went to Cranbrook, and when I hit that campus... I, I, oh, my God. Well, I visited Cranbrook last year. I was a visiting artist under Elliot Earls, mm-hmm. and it was a magical experience. I never wanted to leave. It was just... I, I, I mean, I seriously was there thinking, hmm, maybe I can sublet my apartment, take a leave of absence from work, and study under Elliot for three years. There you go. <laughs> but now it, it was like, you know, it was like... Wow, it was my home for two years, yeah. and I just, I just loved the place. It was great. So what made you decide to go to Cranbrook? What made you decide to pick that school? I had a ceramic teacher in my undergraduate work at Bradley that I really liked, and he was a, a graduate from Cranbrook. Did you study ceramics? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was a designer. Right. So I was in the design department, and for the first year... I, I extensively – I just wanted to learn more about screen printing. So I basically focused – I probably should have been the print department. But I just really learned a lot more about screen printing. And then on the, the – my extra classes was in textile design with screen printing again. And then my second year, I thought I'd better really do maybe a design project. And uh, for some reason, I saw the driver's manual for the state of Michigan – I said, this thing kind of sucks. <laughs> I think I think I could maybe take this on as a thesis project. So somehow, I don't know what happened. I can't remember, but I promoted myself and the idea of doing a new driver's manual, some bureaucrat up in Lansing. And they said, cool, okay, let's do it. So the rest of the year, I did a new driver's manual for the state of Michigan, and it was a lot of fun, and I got some notoriety out of it. I was a little disappointed they kept it for like 16 years before they <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So now it must be a collector's item. Oh, I don't know. I might have the, the only, driver's I might have the only one, right? By Steve but, but anyway, it was a great experience. But I'll never forget the first time I went to present what we were doing. And this is when I got a, a, a sense of one side of government. And all these guys were in this room waiting to see my proposal and what I was going to do. And uh, one of them said, boy, what? you sure have a nice smile on your face won't take us too long to wipe that off. <laughs> Would you believe it? Oh, my gosh. But anyway, fortunately, I had a young fella who I'd been working with. And after the meeting, I said, well, what do you think? His name was Stephen, too. I said, what do you think we're going to do? He said, just keep it going. We'll be all right. That's amazing. You know, I had an experience that happened very similar to that. And it's so interesting, the sort of bureaucratic pessimism that can exist. When when Sterling was hired to redesign the Burger King identity, we mm-hmm. were so excited about it. it. You know, we like threw a parade before we even started working. Okay, but okay. when we got to Burger King's headquarters in Miami, as soon as the, the elevator doors closed and we were alone with one of the senior research directors, he looks at us and says, congratulations on winning this project. But don't get your hopes up for ever getting a new logo to market. <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> Don't get your hopes up. Why take the project? Oh, man. So, so how'd so, you do? Well, we did okay. You know. Mm-hmm. So you never left Michigan after no, Cranbrook? No, I never did. I really wanted to come to New York or go to the West Coast. I did not want to stay in America. You've been in Michigan I mean, almost no, your whole time. No, I grew up in time. Kansas, which was great. And then I went to school at Bradley, which is Illinois, Chicago wasn't too far away. And then after the Peace Corps, Cranbrook, Detroit. I said, really? I want to... You're a real Midwest boy now. <laughs> yeah, I guess after 41 years, yeah. what do you call home, you know, when yeah. I was born in Seattle, which is a great city. Now, before we talk about Herman yeah. Miller, yeah, what yeah, about yeah. this stint as a typesetter in New Jersey? I oh, couldn't okay. find anything okay. more okay. about that. After I got out of, out of Cranbrook, after I got my degree from Cranbrook, I was looking for a job. Okay. okay? 
and at that time, a corporate job was decent. I mean, you know, there were good design studios within corporations, Polaroid, Xerox. I mean, everybody, you know. So I, I, my folks were living in New Jersey at the time. Okay. So I came back to New Jersey thinking maybe Boston, maybe New York. And I said, you know, I, I've leached off my folks long enough. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I might as well. You know, maybe I can find a job. And for some reason, I landed this, this job at a little typesetter called Datco. And it was when cold composition was first coming in on stream. So I said, then they were really interested. They need somebody to do paste up. Oh. And run the stat camera and oh, stuff like God. that, right? So oh, romantic. Yeah, really. But, you know, it's kind of fun to talk about some of that stuff now. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, they said, yeah, would you like a job? We've got a lot of work. They were working with Deloitte Touche, doing a lot of international manuals and so forth. So I'd say, yeah, I'll take the job, but there's one condition. And they said, what's that? I said, if I have an interview, I need time off. <laughs> and they said, deal. Nice. Yeah, it was Sweet. nice. So, uh I did that until I got the, the the offer from Herman Miller. Okay, so tell us how that happened. Okay, so that happened. Uh, I was in Boston interviewing, and I had a call from someone at Herman Miller, Howard Sutton, and he said, uh, we're going to develop an in-house capability for design. Would you be interested in the job? And I said, sure, let's talk. And I didn't know Herman Miller. I didn't know about Charles Murray Ames. I'm almost embarrassed. I'm not embarrassed to admit it. I didn't, I didn't know, right? And so uh, I had the interview at LaGuardia Airport, oh, 5.30 wow. in the afternoon. <laughs> I mean, everybody was reviewing my portfolio as it laid on the floor. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine. Commuters yeah. walking by, what's going on? About that? Anyway, <laughs> it worked out well. And he said, well, okay, can you go see John Massey in Chicago? Because we, he's been doing a lot of work for us, and he's really the one who... As I learned, after he sort of gets a ball in play in a corporation, he wanted the corporation to establish an inside group to kind of be his cops. Okay, so I was kind of the graphic custodian. And he said, after your interview with John, ask him if you should come to Zealand. Zealand, Michigan, where Herman Miller was born. Yeah, that's Zealand, Michigan. So we had an interview with John. And John at that time, it was kind of intimidating. I mean, he looked like a banker. I mean, he had wire glasses, three-piece suit. And, wow. And this that, nice, that, that what I would have imagined. Yeah, nice office on Michigan Avenue where he – actually, he was working for Container Corporation, but this was an offshoot. So I said, well, after the interview, which I thought went, okay, um, should I go to Zealand? And John said, why not? So then I went to Zealand, and that's how it happened. But – and, and so I really just, you know, I still want to be on either coast, but I couldn't turn down the job. I said, I'm going to take it for a couple of years, try it out. And the reason I did was while I was at Cranbrook, I became familiar with Herman Miller and the designers because the, the folks that were in industrial design, and at that time the, the department had all three disciplines, environmental uh, product design, graphic design, there were about 18 of us. And uh, these folks would go over to the annual sale at Herman Miller and bring back these treasures mm. from Eames, Nelson. Nobody ever brought back a Gucci table, but I mean, they had Too hard to carry. chairs and stuff. <laughs> and that was really my first introduction to Herman Miller. And I realized, you know, there must be something special about this company, and let's give it a whack. 
Well, the wax turned out to be four decades. Right, because you had no intention of <laughs> no, sticking around no from what I understand. sticking around. And, but it, it's just, I mean, I mean, you drink the Kool-Aid after a while. The values were very compatible to my personal values. And I really liked the products that they were designing. They had a lot of integrity. They were solving problems. And I said, look, if you're going to be going or, or promoting anything, you might as well promote something you like. Now, when you started at Herman Miller, the company's reputation was very well established. Oh, reputation bigger than life. And and produced designs of, as you mentioned, Charles and Ray Eames and George Nelson. And when you first arrived, Charles and Ray Eames were still actively involved in the organization. Well, I remember very well my first visit to the studio. It felt so, uh, I don't want to say it, it was just so natural and, you know, we had lunch and they showed us films and Charles cranked his gurney with the little monkey and, <laughs> and it was just a delightful day. And after I realized it was very calculated, it was designed. Really? And, you know, one of the things I, I learned from them was when you design something, you ask the question, what's next and what's next? Because that really then addresses a more holistic design solution than if you just stop here and don't ask the question, what's next? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, they'd come to Zealand. Maybe I saw them in Zealand a couple times. They came in for photo shoots because they were still designing products. They also came in and gave presentations once in a while. And one time they came in, apparently, and Hugh Dupree, who was the CEO at the time, was showing them around. And they saw on the, on the wall of the plant this recognition wall, five years, 10 years, 15, 20, 25, 30. And all the employees' names were on it who had been there for those years. And Charles turned to Hugh and said, what happens, Hugh, if you've been here for 25 years? Click. Hugh realized that they had worked for the company 25 years and he hadn't recognized it. <laughs> so he pulled together a few of us, and we had a great party at the Eames office. Wow. That was very special. That's amazing. Amazing. Yeah, that was cool. So when you first started 41 years ago, what was your original charge at the company? What were you tasked to do? I was a graphic designer. That was my title. And I was charged to uh, help John and maintain what he had put in place and do brochures and posters and work on the catalogs and whatever. So let's talk a little bit about your your wonderful, magical posters. You only have 20 of them that you've done, one a year, mm -hmm. for the company's picnic. Mm -hmm. Talk about how they started. Talk about how you created them. And then I want to talk about why you're not doing them anymore. Okay. I think I was on the job maybe a month or two. And one of the VPs came up to me one day and said, you know, Steve, we have a picnic every year. And we've never had a, a designer on staff. Would you be interested in doing a poster for it? I said, sure. He said, oh, by the way, the picnic committee has decided it's going to be called the Sweet Corn Festival. I said, cool. So shortly after I was hired, we hired someone else. His name was Phil Mitchell. So one day I came in and said, Phil, we've got to do this poster. I know how to screen print. I know all about it, so let's just do it. What do you think? Cool. So I had an ear of corn. He could draw better than I could. So I stuck it in my mouth, 
I said, you know, draw it. <laughs> so he did a little sketch. And then after that, I took his sketch and made it large. I believe posters should be large. I mean, a lot of times now people say, oh, we want a poster and they want something 12 by 18. That's not I a mean, poster. I mean, that's not a poster. And for some reason, we felt we had to do it after hours. I don't know why. It was, you know. Clandestine. Maybe. So we're down in the basement because screen printing got pretty smelly with the cleanup and the inks and stuff, although it still permeated the little building we were in. And we printed 50 of them. And we were pretty proud of it. And it looked good, and it was popular. And I decided to enter it in AIGA's communication graphics show. And we did. We sent it in. And then I started to read the small print. And it says, must be done in editions of 500. I said, uh-oh. <laughs> oh, boy, we only did 50. So I went to the fellow I was reporting to. I said, Howard, you know, I entered this competition, and I just read the fine print. I guess I should have read it before. Fortunately, I didn't. And uh, it says that we had to have done 500 posters, and we only did 50. And without blinking an eye, he said, if you get in, we'll print 500. Very nice. History was made. And we got in. So we've made good. he made good on the promise. We did the 500 commercially, and people bought them. That cost. And that established a budget to do the next year's. And those sold. And it was a self-sustaining program. And some editions uh, we did, like the corn poster and some of the other early ones, we printed four or five times. Good. 500 each. They're magnificent. They <laughs> really are magnificent. That's a lot of fun. We really had a good time. But why'd you that, stop? 20 years? Why? Well, why did you continue to okay, truthfully. Yes, truthfully. I wondered whether Herman Miller had run its course for me. Really? Oh, yeah. There were a few times. So I that mean, was, the, that job, was the job's great, but it's not perfect. Well, what and, is? And, what and, is? And, you know, you have your peaks and valleys, and I may have hit on the valleys. I said, well, if I'm really thinking of leaving, which I don't think my heart was there, but if I do... Wouldn't 20 be a better number than 19 or 21? <laughs> I mean, there's something nice about it. And I had no idea when we did the first one, I'd do 20. Right. And once I started, I kept with the theme, you know, Lilliputian viewpoint of picnic food. And Cooper Black, God knows why I chose Cooper Black for a typeface. Well, it but was I perfect did. for the time, too. And I stuck with it. And, and uh, so Phil left Herman Miller, you know, I think after the watermelon. So all the rest were truly only mine. And nobody ever saw them before they were ready. I had nobody to approve it. It was just my work. Oh, how lovely. It was lovely. And, but I pinned pin sketches up. And stuff as I was working on them. So if anybody came by, they might, you know. I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in watching people's visuals or their body language when they're looking at work. Are they smiling? Are they frowning? Do they look happy? Do you think they get it? And it really gives you pretty good insight on, on some of your work sometimes. Yeah, I love to and, just and, watch And I remember the are. one that was most puzzling. Which the, one? The, the ham. Oh, why was that most puzzling? I, I can't remember. The custodian, after hours one night, I saw her watching, looking at this thing. I said, what do you, what do you think it is? She said, I have no idea. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think when it was done, she probably got it. Now, you've reported to six CEOs in your well, tenure? Well, I worked with six on their annual reports. Okay. That was really a lot of fun. And you've really more than just designed them. I, I think you've reinvented them, every one that you've done. Um, what made you decide to approach the report so differently year after year after year? 
Well, thanks for that compliment. Uh, first of all, the company's so dynamic, and we're doing cool stuff every year. And so we'd always start, Clark and I usually, we've been working on them together since 85, no, 86. And we'd say, well, what was the year about? You know, what was good? What was bad? What do we want to talk about? What could we have some fun with? And we'd usually go in with two or three totally different directions just to get a feel. And that's really when the discussions really started. Another valuable lesson. Don't spend a lot of time on these ideas. Just rough them out enough, comp them up enough so you can communicate possibilities. Then the senior management gets involved. And they start, you get to talk about, well, did you think about this or what about that? And sometimes they change course as a result of that second meeting. And usually for the most part, well, we could have done any of them, really. We wouldn't have gone in with something we couldn't have done. But we could have done any of them. But they usually pick the ones that we really wanted to do. And one story I remember, though, we went in and the CEO at the time, I could tell he wanted us to do a little of two of them. Really? And, and finally, the, the CFO at the time, who's now our CEO, said, Mike, you can't be a tweener. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Very nice. So they were my allies. I mean, they really did. They, they enabled me to do some of these things. I remember when we did that, that marvelous one I worked with uh, Sarah Giovanniti on. With all the people in 1985, 3,000 3, or so, I forget how many spreads. Uh, we went in with two solutions. And Max, without blinking an eye, said, that's the one. How long did it take you to photograph 3,000 people? Well, that was a logistical issue because that made me nervous. How are we going to shoot 3,000 people? And we thought about renting a big stadium like the Pontiac Superdome and getting everybody to take one big shot. And we said, that's not very practical. So that's where Sarah was helpful. She came out and said, well, let's try something. Let's just get a roll of scene. Let's get our, the photographer that was in the house at the time, set it up, and, and just have small groups come in. And then we thought, you know, this is going to be like, kind of like taking baby pictures at the mall. You're gonna, you know, we need a squeaky toy or two because the photographer's going to get tired and the, and the people might get bored. And so we had a young, young guy working for us, Greg, who did great cartwheels and he was, he was a goofy designer. So he was our squeaky toy, and he would get the people to relax and goof off. And, and so we just slowly clicked away and managed to get all 3,000 or how many it was. It was a real revolutionary idea. Yeah. It's been often imitated since, but it was it, really original. Yeah, but the, guess what I forgot? What did you forget? I forgot to measure the heights of these people. Oh. I was trying to get the camera to be always the same distance, but I wanted everybody at scale to each other. Right. So that became another issue. I think we solved it pretty well. Yeah. And this was pre-computer. And they were all outlined. 3,000 so the, 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 the stripper down report. at Hennigan Press. I mean, oh they must, God, they must he must have carpal you. tunnel in the index <laughs> finger and thumb when he was finished. But, yeah, that was a fun report. So I want to talk a little bit about something you brought up before, and that is Herman Miller's corporate values. Herman Miller's corporate guidelines are to remain human, spirited, and purposeful. And you said that your guidelines or your personal guidelines were very much in sync. How does an organization remain human, spirited, and purposeful? How does that happen? Actually, spirited, purposeful, and human 
were three words that we coined maybe four years ago, maybe five years ago, as the common denominator of our graphic communication. They're really not our values. Okay. We have about ten values. Things like transparency, inclusiveness, design matters. I mean, things like that. And, and we reintroduced a business card a couple years ago, and we have a value on the backs of our card with a very small story. One I remember, the the inclusiveness one, we have a a well-known story inside the company. We call it the Millwright story. And D.J. Dupree was the founder of the company, and this story happened about 1926. The Millwright had a heart attack, and he died. And Zealand, as you can imagine, small middle America town, D.J. walked over to the widow's house, and she said, would you like to see some of Herman's poetry? And he said yes, and she showed him the poetry that her husband was writing. He wrote poetry? He wrote poetry, the millwright, the company millwright. And it puzzled D.J. Was this fella a millwright, or was he a poet? Why can't you be both? On his walk home. Well, you could. And that's when DJ realized that every employee is extraordinary. And so that issue of inclusiveness has been with the company since that time. We have a a nice little video on our website where DJ tells the Millwright story. And your listeners might want to check that out. Oh, absolutely. Well, I read in an interview that was featured about you in the 50th anniversary of Communication Arts that... On your desk are piles of Real Voices DVDs mm-hmm. in which Herman Miller's furniture designers talk about what it's like to work for the company. And these are some of the quotes. It's as if you're designing for somebody you love, and it's like playing for the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> really? I mean, when, when, really? When Bill Stump said that, it was a great, great little piece in the video. And uh, he said, but don't get me wrong. I hate the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's fair. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it, it, I mentioned earlier about drinking the Kool-Aid. I mean, it, it's, a, it's just, I don't know what it is. It's a magical kind of place. So one of the most touching aspects of your acceptance speech when you received your AIGA medal was when you talked about your wife. And Herman Miller not only shaped your professional life, but it also shaped your love life because I understand you you met your wife, architectural interior designer Nancy Phillips, at Herman Miller 40 years ago. So was it love at first sight? Actually, no. She was from Dallas. The first female Herman Miller actually moved into the company. And I remember the person that was hiring her saw me one night. It was about 530 evening. He said, hey, Steve, come on over. I want to want to introduce you to a possible new employee. He says, Steve, there's Nancy Phillips. She's from Texas and thinking of joining the, her health care group. Where would you live if you were, you know, where would you advise her to live if she was moving up here? I looked her straight in the eye and said, I wouldn't move here. <laughs> <laughs> True story. Wow. So Can you anyway, imagine if she took your advice? She didn't take my advice. <laughs> She came up. She took the job because, you know, she thought she had died and gone to heaven working for Herman Miller. She was more knowledgeable about Herman Miller than I was because being an interior architectural person and, you know, she's specifying Herman Miller and stuff like that. So she came up 
And as uh, as it happened, she needed some help on a few projects, and of course, those lasted into the night. And, oh, you know, whatever. <laughs> there we get so the juice. That, so that's that's how it happened. And uh, we took cooking classes together for gosh, six, seven years. Really? So you're quite the chef. I uh, used to be, maybe. We like to cook, but I like to eat more. Anyway, what was funny is when she told Joe we were getting married, we must have been extremely discreet because he said, who to? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So that, yeah, we got married in 1973. That's marvelous. What an accomplishment. I read that you had a conversation with a financial advisor and he kept asking the question, when are you going to retire? And you kept saying, I'm not, or I don't have plans to, or I haven't thought about it. And after the third time, Nancy said, you don't get it. Designers don't retire. And I'm wondering if that's true. You said that when you're designing, you always ask, what's next? What's next? What's next? So what is next for well, I, I, Steve well, you know, I wouldn't say I necessarily designed my life and my career. I very much believe in serendipity. And that might be one of the, one of the few issues Nancy and I have is she's more goal-oriented. I just sort of take it as it comes. Well, it hasn't done too badly for you, It hasn't done too badly. So anyway, no, I don't have plans for retirement. I feel I might like to slow down maybe. But I'll tell you, if I had a new challenge every time, yeah, I'd stay in it. Okay. But a lot of times it's it's sort of reinventing. Or if I started work some, with some good colleagues again, like at, at one period of time at Herman Miller we had uh, a – extremely good internal group and we also used very good external people and it was just really great for for stimulation motivation you know things to talk about and come the downturn in the business everybody's business you know the the group got smaller we now are rebuilding we have some very good young designers working for us but it's a little different because the company's larger the marketing department's a little more formalized, mm. and uh, so the challenges are a little bit different. And some days, let's face it, I don't have the stamina <laughs> that I used to have. <laughs> I mean, I, but, you know, but I, I give it my all. I really work hard. You know, so I don't know. I don't have any place to retire. Good, because we need you doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for coming on Design Matters, Steve. Steve Rickholm is the creative director for the Herman Miller Company. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. And Debbie, thanks for this opportunity. Oh, Steve, you're a doll. Thank you. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jen Simon. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.